Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for today's guest. He is a very talented man who wears many hats, Frank Rich. We will be talking with Frank in just a second. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Frank Rich is a journalist, author, and television producer. He's a writer at large for New York Magazine, and he was previously chief drama critic and an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. He executive produced the long-running HBO series Succession and Veep, as well as the limited series White House Plumbers, and the documentaries Six by Sondheim and Becoming Mike Nichols. His books include The Greatest Story Ever Sold, The Decline and Fall of Truth from 9-11 to Katrina, and the memoir Ghost Light. He has been awarded six Emmys, three Peabody Awards, three Golden Globe Awards, and a Producers Guild Award. His journalism honors include the George Polk Award for Commentary and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism from Harvard University. He has twice been a Pulitzer Prize finalist. In 2015, he was inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. His new limited series for HBO, The Regime, starring Kate Winslet and directed by Stephen Frears, is scheduled to premiere in March 2024. Frank, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. I'm a big fan. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, so this is a, a big thrill and an honor to have you here. Well, thank you, really. It's very nice of you. I'm happy to meet you face-to-face. You wear a lot of hats, and uh, I want to talk about all those hats with you today. Uh, I want to peel the onion back a little bit, take you back to childhood. Sure. I know you grew up in D.C., and mm-hmm. um, one of the things we love to talk about with our our guests is to see how much connective tissue there is to what people were interested in as a child to where they eventually landed in their careers. Like for me, when I was like nine years old, I used to hang around the Nixon campaign headquarters. I'm a total liberal in my adult life, but I just liked the buttons and the bumper stickers. So I would take them and hand them out in the neighborhood. I became a politics junkie. Maybe that's where it started. So tell me about you. Theater, in my, Film, yeah. politics, TV, any of that in your childhood, interest-wise? All of it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a pretty direct correlation in my case. I've, I've thought about it a lot. I wrote a book about it, a childhood memoir at one point. Um, so I grew up in D.C. I was um, not from a political family, but I lived in the city. It's the company town, so politics were all around me. I remember being taken by... My mother, at, uh, when I was seven, I, I didn't quite know what it meant to distribute uh, Adlai Stevenson <laughs> buttons in, the, uh, uh, in our neighborhood. Um, and, of course, it was, it, journalism was also all around me, mm-hmm. um, although the papers, the Washington papers were fairly provincialist. Washington Post, for instance, uh, before Watergate, I, I was in, out of Washington, out of high school by the time Ben Bradley remade that paper into mm-hmm. a world-class paper as opposed to the sleepy paper was then. So, uh, and then as far as the theater goes, it was maybe still is my greatest passion. I, as a child of divorce, I think it's not uncommon that, you know, some of that, particularly in those days when almost no one got divorced. I mean, I never heard the word divorce until my parents got divorced and none of my friends had divorced parents until... They graduated high school and everyone's parents got divorced then. Um, and so um, I found a sort of refuge in the theater. And I think that's part of it. The first show I was taken to see was uh, the touring company of the Broadway production of Damn Yankees. I was a diehard child Washington Senators fan <laughs> when they, 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 before they left and became the twins. Um, and uh, it was the ultimate sort of wet dream to have uh, the senators um, uh, uh, steal the steal the pennant from the Yankees. That was, you know, um, but I don't know if that's really the, what gone beyond the theater so much as just as the, it captured my imagination. So, and I'd say the other thing that affected my worldview in Washington was someone who lived in the city, not the suburbs, went to public schools, not private schools. Um, 
I was very, very conscious that there were two Washingtons. That there was the Washington that was a back lot for tourists to come and tour the way they would, you know, the Hollywood studios at Disneyland, see the beautiful, you know, federal buildings and, and tour the White House and the Capitol. And then there was a, uh, a, a Washington of the actual city that was very poor, uh, largely a uh, majority black city, uh, a terrible school. When I was in high school, um, it was declared by the national, the Washington DC public school system was declared by the uh, National Education Association the worst uh, in the country. Mm. It had low, partially because in those days, uh, this DC didn't even have a, the sort of half home rule it has now. There was no mayor. It was a, they called the House District Committee, largely populated uh, by white, Southern, then Democratic, racist congressmen who wanted to starve a school system that was 90% public school system, 90% black. So I was very conscious that what you see on stage, what you see when you tour the White House, Lincoln Memorial, is different from what you see backstage where, you know, when I was growing up, there were poor people uh, uh, living in alleys. There was tremendous, tremendous poverty uh, blocks away from the White House. And it was as I, it was the year after I graduated high school, that the city exploded after the King assassination in 1968, sort of showing to the world there were two different cities there that I had grown up with and been keenly aware of. So that, I think, shaped my politics. It, it, it fit with my idea of theater, that there's what, what's on stage and what's going on in the wings. And all of that sort of, and, and I always was surrounded by journalism. I delivered, I delivered, uh, uh, the Evening Star, uh, paper route to make extra money. And, you know, people I was delivering to was like, I didn't know them, but like Tom Wicker, Walter Lippmann, the lion from the uh, uh, journalism world of that time who lived, you know, in my neighborhood, more or less, in Cleveland Park and Washington. And with regard to theater, you've had a, a very close relationship over the years with Stephen Sondheim, but I believe at around 10 is when you first had an exposure to his music well, yes. I mean, I should say about my relationship with, with Steve, I met him because he reached out to me about something I'd written while I was still in college. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I didn't know him until after I'd long ceased being a drama critic. If I had known him when I became a drama critic, I never could have written about him. But I, I knew him. So I, knew, I met him like I was 20 or 21. And then I got to know him again. But, you know, I was in love with Broadway musicals, and they would try out, in those days, Broadway shows would try out in cities like Washington, Philadelphia, mm -hmm. Boston, and New Haven. Doesn't really happen now, but no one can afford to do it. And so one of the shows that tried out uh, when I was a kid was a Funny Thing Happened Way the Forum, which was his first produced musical as a composer, lyricist on Broadway. Got terrible reviews in Washington, almost died there. I saw it, <laughs> loved it, became a fan for life, and of course, when it moved to New York for two weeks later for more discerning audiences, it became a hit. I met him um, because uh, uh, years later, a decade later, I was uh, um, reviewing plays as well as writing editorials of my bifurcated life about the Vietnam War for the for the Harvard Crimson. And my senior year, I reviewed a show of his. It was, again, a tryout, people of a tryout uh, in Boston called Follies. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I loved. It got pretty much trashed uh, in, by Boston critics. Um, and I think because I was one person who liked it, and somehow he saw my review. I hardly, there's a student paper usually circulate among adults, particularly outside of campus. But someone seen it and shown it to him, he asked to meet me, and I met him, and he gave me uh, a lot of encouragement. We had a drink, and we had a correspondence for a year or two after that, mm -hmm. and really was the first person to say to me uh, from the real world to validate, oh, maybe I had something to offer as a writer. But it'd be another 10 years before I even became a drama critic. Mm -hmm. I was a film critic and TV critic and a political journalist before that. So somebody had given him the review of Follies, and when he reached out to you, he said something to you like, since you're one day going to become the enemy, 
I think we should meet. It was something like that. Yes, something something like that exactly. And uh, and and we met and we you know we had a, we had a drink in Boston before he left town. And I guess to some extent, I did become the enemy. I didn't like every thing of his that I reviewed when I was the Times critic mm-hmm. for eleven years in the nineteen eighties. But this, but um, but then we got past it twenty years after that and became friends. It was a very generous move on his part for someone of his stature to reach out to a college student to make an introduction like that. I mean, I don't, I, I doubt that well, kind of thing happens all the time. I have to say, I'm sure it doesn't. And I also have to say, as I would learn when I got to know Steve much later in life, this was a routine practice of his, mm. not necessarily to re- critics, reviewers, or journalists, but to a performer that he saw and liked in an off-Broadway mm-hmm. show or a composer of a song that he heard at a workshop. And when he died, um, now more than two years ago, a lot of people came out of the woodwork of all ages and generations and it became sort of a thing i think on instagram of letters and encouragement they received from steve sondheim at crucial moments uh in their career and and it was a lesson that you know uh i took seriously because when i uh, you know in my mature career i try to always see if I can, or at least talk to or write to, you know, young people who reach out to me who want to do some version of what I've done. I think it's it's important to do that, and sometimes um, it just gives encouragement, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when you're needy and you need that. And I'll never forget what he did for me. And by the way, he was replaying the lesson taught to him as a child when, as a kid, his mother socially knew the great lyricist Oscar Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. And, ha- and Hammerstein, beginning when Steve was like, you know, an adolescent, uh, gave him encouragement that would obviously pay off later in one of the greatest careers in the history of American theater. Mm. And what a storied career it was. I mean, you're talking West Side Story, Gypsy, the shows you mentioned, Follies, Forum. You've said, quote, what's forgotten that Steve is a, gr- now that Steve is a grand old man of the theater, is just how hostile critics and audiences were to his work for much of his career. Why was that? It's fascinating. I don't really know, but here I have several theories. One is he never did the same thing twice. Mm. You know, and a lot of uh, people who, who were commercially successful in the musical theater, this is probably applies to other avenues of show business, including, you know, movies and television. A lot of people who were most commercially successful found the niche and kept to it. So someone like Jerry Herman, who wrote Hello, Dolly and Mame, or Andrew Lloyd Webber, who mm-hmm. wrote, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Joseph Mason Technicolor, Dream Go to the Series of Spectacles. They sort of did a version of the same thing, whereas Steve, one show was set in ancient Rome in a comedy. One was, a, you know, a, a bittersweet romance so set in Scandinavia, a little night music. Company about a single man in contemporary New York Pacific Overtures about Commodore Perry opening up uh, Japan to the West. It couldn't have been more varied, uh, uh, you know, material and shows, but also and 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 varied music to go with it. It wasn't you know it wasn't the same. You know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they were great in my view and and on, and in Steve's view as well. But it was a there was a format. You know, there's not a long distance between the King and I and the Sound of Music. Mm-hmm thematically or what they do. So, so he he was never content to do the same thing over and over again. And his music is uh, daring, tricky. It's, you know music better than I do. Everyone, Anyone who plays piano or sings can tell you how hard it is to execute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes developing a taste for and ear for. And But over time, the audience caught caught up with him. So shows like Follies, Company, Sweeney Todd uh, were were all ahead of their time. Sunday in the Park with George, mm. most of them lost money and and you know failed on Broadway. They usually lost the Tony Awards shows that are forgotten now, and it shows something about how art can work if it's if there's something authentic and true about it. 
it's built for the ages and eventually people are likely to discover it whereas things that are uh uh more pandering uh um uh, you know um are evanescent they don't last forever mm. There's something else that you had said about him and his work, which I think is really interesting in the context of this conversation. You said, quote, among the many things I've learned from Steve is that a career as iconoclastic as his, whatever the profession, requires not just talent, but courage. He not only had to outlast the most hostile naysayers, but to ignore powerful trends in pop culture. So from a timing perspective, is it also possible that his music, you say he was ahead of his time, but... Was it also that he never capitalized on the current trends to tap into the zeitgeisty kind of thing of the era? I would say that's less a factor because that was true of everybody. It was true of all his rivals too. Basically, and I say this as a you know a child of the '60s and came of age with the coming of age of modern rock music and pop music. The, Broadway musical theater completely missed the boat. Uh, there, you know, at a time when they could have, and Steve often talked about this, they could have recruited Paul Simon or Laura Nero or Bob Dylan or to write or the Beatles, whatever, mm. uh, to James Browns, people like that to to do shows. They didn't, and so, uh, and Steve at least was more of aware of it. But you know, company was a a relatively modern score by Broadway standards at that time. You know, a typical other show then would be a show like a musical like The Rothschilds, which was sort of a follow-up to Fiddler on the Roof by the same author. So, so, but he never, so, and his music now still doesn't fit any kind of pop music, really. When he wants to parody pop music, he can and did. He did some of that in company and he did some of it uh, in a in a in assassin of all things, giving John Hinckley a sort of seventies pop ballad, but no, his music had its own voice, and and that's why it, it, it didn't it didn't cater to the the Roger Hammerstein and uh, Cole Porter uh, uh, musical culture that he grew up in as, as in his early years, and it didn't cater to rock really. He was keenly aware of rock, but basically. Uh, he, did, he wasn't going to try to pretend to be something he wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. he admired the Beatles. He admired a lot of rock music, but it wasn't what he did. Mm-hmm. I've read that when he was in his 40s, his mother sent him a note saying that the only regret she had in her life was having him as a son. Yeah, that she wished, wished he'd never been born. Yes, and in fact, Jesus. he talked about it publicly and in a documentary, Six by Sondheim, that I did during his lifetime about him for HBO, we included a clip of that moment. Um, she may have said like on 60 Minutes or someplace, I can't remember anymore. And um, he had a very, very troubled, he was also a child of divorce. He um, was close to his father, his father remarried. His mother was obviously uh, not a nice, not, not nurturing and not encouraging and um, not nurturing. You know, was was big, you're being kind. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be, being kind, you know, was obviously a, a, a horror. Right. But he survived it, mm-hmm. you know, and and had something of a sense of humor about it. Which a lot of people wouldn't have, and mm-hmm. um, and so yeah. And so you landed at the New York Times, and um, you spent uh, 14 years there as the chief drama critic, and uh, 17 years as a columnist. Did I get my numbers right? Yeah, almost. I, I I I joined as a drama critic in 1980. I left that job at the end of '92, so it was it was about 11 and a half years. And then, in one form or another, I was a columnist until I left in 2011. So, um, how long was I was there? A little over 30 years right. with okay. the two jobs. I've always been fascinated by reviews and reviewing. Like when you decide to go see a movie or a play, do you personally put much weight into reviews when you make decisions on what to see? When I was growing up, I read reviews, particularly of the theater, because I wanted to see what I was missing. I was in, I was in Washington, D.C., um, 
in a sort of middle class back when I wasn't going to Broadway all the time or opening nights. I wasn't going to London. Mm -hmm. To me, the best critics conveyed the feeling of what it was like to be in a theater when a live event was happening and what it felt like. And to me, the uh, opinions were, were secondary. I mean, mm -hmm. the two critics that I revered the most as a kid, Walter Kerr then wrote to the New York Herald Tribune and mm -hmm. Kenneth Tynan, who wrote in London and some New Yorker. In retrospect, most of their opinions, uh, I, I didn't, I, a lot of them I didn't agree with. I mean, Walter Kerr, who I would, who my later life got to know and succeeded was a hero of mine, never liked uh, much of Sondheim's work. Uh, Kenneth Tynan didn't understand Beckett or Pinter, as I recall, um, but it didn't matter if they were really great writers. And in and, and movie criticism, another critic that had a huge effect on me was uh, uh, Pauline Kael, the movie mm -hmm. critic of The New Yorker, who was a brilliant writer about movies, and sometimes my tastes were lying with hers, but you know, she didn't like Kubrick and she didn't like Hitchcock, two of my favorite <laughs> directors. Right. Um, so as a reader of criticism, uh, I want I I I want terrific writing that's informed and knowledgeable and brings the event alive. Particularly if it's something I'm not going to see or can't see. And then usually I can find uh, uh, my own my own way to what I want to see as mm -hmm. a as a consumer of culture. To the test of a great critic um, is that they can write so so well and excitingly about uh, something they've seen that they make you want to go even if they hated it. Right. Pauline Kiel could write a pan of a movie and just by how she described it and brought it alive, he said, I'm going to see that tomorrow. And then you might find out, oh, she's right. It is terrible, but maybe you'd like it. Hmm. That kind of criticism is, is, is vanishing, unfortunately, because in the world of quick takes, hot takes, the internet, social media, that kind of essay that really is beautifully written and has an excitement about it. They're still done in some publications, obviously, but it's a vanishing, uh, a vanishing genre and a vanishing craft and much less influential than it once was. Mm -hmm. And do you import all of that when you were writing reviews? Like did, was your goal to bring the production, uh, colorize it, make people feel it and get the flavor versus trying to influence what their ultimate decision was going to be, whether to see it or not. Those aren't mutually exclusive things. The opinion was always the easy part. Mm -hmm. A hundred, you could take a hundred people who saw a show and they, and if they all had the same, we'll say for the sake of argument, they all had the opinion. The one who should be a professional critic is he or she that can convey, as you were saying, the color of an event, the, the feeling of it, the emotions, mm -hmm. the, possibly the intellectual headiness, the entertainment, and then it speaks for itself. When I occasionally would teach criticism at college students, I, an assignment I always gave was write a review of whatever you're writing a review of and don't use any adjectives or, or and ideally no <laughs> adverbs either. If you, can it's, if you can describe it well enough and what you felt, your enthusiasm or your detestation, as the case may be, mm -hmm. will come through because it'll come through in a story, not through you saying, you know, this is a show you've got to see or this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't think smart readers are persuaded by that kind of rhetoric anyway. It's, it's suspicious. I, I don't, people who write that way don't, don't interest me as a reader of criticism and, mm -hmm. the, and the best ones. Don't. So that's my philosophy. Does that make sense? Just sure, talk? absolutely. I, I think when you, as a reviewer, if you see something that you really don't like, I would imagine it's very hard not to be genuine with your opinions, and people are right. free to listen to them or not. You know, right? And but you know, the opinion comes from what from your description and what you're writing, not necessarily uh, because you say this is a stinker. You know. Uh, and also, humor is a very useful tool in dealing with things that are not great, because you might as well have some fun. But, you know, uh, I wrote pans and shows on Broadway where I never even mentioned the actors. I didn't feel they were responsible for being in a show like Moose Murders, to take an example, a mm -hmm. legendary flop that I 
Raylan one night that I had to review. And 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 so and the influence of critics anyway, then and now is wildly overstated. And many of the things I like the most uh were flops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote the most favorable reviews of Sunny in the Park with George was a flop. Almost all of August Wilson's plays, a writer, playwright I championed over like six or seven of his works, all of them failed on Broadway except the one that had a star, James Earl Jones, in it. So it's all overrated anyway. But the, and, and if people want to see uh, Cats or whatever, uh, they're going to see it regardless of the critics. So you, you that's uh, always been the case. Of the film uh, The Passion of the Christ, you wrote, you wrote nothing so much as a porn movie. Oh replete with slow-mo climaxes and pounding music for the money shots. That might actually get some people to go see it. (laughs) Well, maybe, but that, just to get the context right, I wasn't reviewing it as a critic. I was writing a uh, a column uh, to illustrate uh, uh, Mel Gibson's virulent anti-Semitism, which is percolated Mm -hmm. through that movie. I I hadn't been a movie critic for years when I wrote that it was really about the message that, uh, you know, that's that to me was a big hit. It was an enormous hit. I don't think what I wrote had anything to do with it. I don't think, frankly, as an audience, it really reads the New York Times op-ed page at that time. But it was an enormous hit, and I think it probably was already a hit when I wrote about it, uh, since I wasn't reviewing it. But my point was, here's someone using uh, a mass, mass medium for bigotry. That's different from panning a movie because mm-hmm. it's boring or poorly made or badly acted or badly written. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, it was in some ways, it was quite an effective movie in the same way, you know, The Triumph of the Will is uh, an effective movie, even as it, you know, pushed the ideals of the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of actors, and actors always like to say that they don't read reviews. I never read reviews of my stuff. You know, I've, since I've been working with actors for the past 15 years in television, I'd say, it's interesting, I'm, I'm not sure I know. I, there's some actors who definitely say that. There's some who clearly read the reviews while pretending that <laughs> they're not. But frankly, if I were an actor, uh, I wouldn't necessarily read my reviews because, in, in particularly favorable reviews, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's kind of an old... old um, uh, uh, some truism in the theater that if someone gives a great performance in the theater and gets a great review and a critic like me singles out, oh my God, what Meryl Streep did in this one scene on stage, you're going to become self-conscious and suddenly start distorting what you did because, oh, that's the, that's the greatest, that's a great thing I did. So it's going to make, so I wouldn't blame actors for a second for not reading it. And indeed, as a producer, um, I'm very careful about, uh, you know, not being specific in, in, in praise when I'm talking to an actor while we're making something. Mm. I just finished over a number of months making a, um, uh, a project with the, the actor Kate Winslet abroad. And, you know, it's a, I can say I, I'm, not objective because I produce it, but I think she's giving a brilliant performance, but it's a very specific performance where she does things she's never done before that make it tick. And so, well, the extent that I, you know, speak to her and encourage her, I would never say, and by the way, I love the way you convey this emotion, this actor in that scene, it would screw everything up. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do that. You want an artist to have the space to succeed or fail on his or her own mm. uh, without, um, you, know, you don't want to hear, if you're an actor, you, you don't want to hear other voices uh, pro or con making specific comments about what you're doing while you're doing it. Yeah, I totally get and agree that it would be totally fine for uh, actors not to read them. But I also, in a way, totally get why they would, you know, like, why not? I wonder, like... Can you put so much of your life into a, a piece of work and then not listen to the people who are saying, hey, we watched it and here's what we thought? Yeah, but I also feel actors have different techniques. And there are famous actors who 
are not necessarily so introspective and can probably read a review pro or con and have it roll off their back. Mm. And there are others who they're like sensitive musical instruments. I'm not saying that one is better than the other because right. both kinds of actors can be mm-hmm. uh, quite effective, but who who um, uh, can be thrown off. You know, it's it's you know it's like it's, I don't know if you're watching a symphony orchestra and someone in the third row is popping bubble gum, it might throw you off. You know, that might throw a musician off. Um, I think that. Um, Criticism of, of things like scripts are somewhat different. I mean, certainly there was a tradition in the theater that uh, all playwrights, producers, directors out of town, if there's a critic they respected and they, the show was still in work because they were still developing it for, on their way to Broadway, they would listen. And sometimes they wouldn't. I mean, Sondheim and his director, producer Harold Prince, did not listen to um, the pans they got out of town to company and Follies and Forum on the way uh, into town. That takes a lot of guts. But other playwrights will tell you, gee, this critic in the Boston Globe, you know, was right. We should, What was this scene doing in the second act? Let's cut it. And they take it out. And if it worked better, they'd keep the change. If it didn't work better, they put it back in again. Mm-hmm. What it When I was kid and teenager in Washington, I hung around this one Broadway tryout house, uh, the National Theater near the White House, uh, so much I was hired as a ticket taker. And one thing I saw was watching. The shows were still in work. They were usually going to play three weeks in Washington and then a week later open on Broadway. Um, and I saw shows that ultimately were enormous hits that in Washington were immediately recognizable as hits. And yet I saw the standing in the back as a you know, lowly ticket taker. The creators of the show keep tamp. I could go every night, play hooky from uh, homework in high school and see, you know, mm-hmm. a classic example is the odd couple. Mm-hmm. It was clear the moment it opened in Washington, it was gonna be enormous success. And yet during three weeks of Washington, you could see Neil Simon, who wrote it, and Mike Nichols, who directed it, and Walter Matthau and Art Carney, who starred in it, constantly making changes. And they didn't even come up with the show's ending until the last weekend of Washington. And four days later, opened on 45th Street in New York and became this enormous hit. But that they knew it could be better, even though it was already successful, was a revelation to me. And they listened to critics to some extent, I'm sure, but they also listened to themselves. They knew they had a vision and they wanted to uh, uh, make it right. By contrast, the first Sondheim show that uh, I saw by the Amway, the Forum in Washington, in the tryout, got terrible reviews. I was there as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old. The audiences hated it. They walked out, it was empty houses, and they stuck to their guns. They never made major changes in that show, and they took it into New York and and triumphed. Mm -hmm. Washington just didn't get it. They just didn't understand it. So after the Times, I think about a dozen years ago, you went to New York Magazine, also writing about politics and media. And I'm really interested, I want to ask you about politics in a second, but I'm really interested in how the media has changed since you first started writing about it. Oh, I would say, yeah, and and it's like what Moore's principle, it's changing more every two or three years. Look, I grew up in a three-television network Mm -hmm. uh, world, major movie studios. Um, it's only uh, by the time I was writing about media at the Times and then at New York, it already changed substantially. Obviously, cable news had come in, which didn't obviously exist earlier. Many newspapers and magazines had, had folded. And by the time I, by the early on, not that early, but within a few years of my becoming a columnist in the 90s, uh, the internet mm-hmm. came in as, as a, and the web as a form of distribution. So the upheaval was just enormous. And now, of course, it's think phenomena as various as TikTok and AI are, gonna, are completely reshaping it again. And it, you question um, whether words mean the same thing as a form of communication as opposed to videos. 
you know, you look at a network like CNN, which is revolutionary 30 years ago, now trying to figure out what to do mm-hmm. when their constituency gets news from their phones and probably aren't going to watch a full bit of CNN programming on their phone while bopping around their, their lives. Um, and I think there's a lot of chaos and confusion and I'm very glad I'm not writing about it anymore because I, I, I'm as baffled as anyone else. Um, but you know, when I first arrived at, when I was, I was at time magazine before I was at the times and you know, they didn't, you typed into typewriters, it was taken to someone to put it into a word processor. Mm-hmm. You, you handed it in. When I got to the Times, there were still printing presses uh, in the basement. The presses started rolling, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, you'd hear it. Uh, there was ink, dust everywhere. <laughs> you wrote into something that looked like a word processor, but there was no, you had to be there to file your copy. There was a front page-like newsroom. There was no such thing as a personal computer yet. You and then when modems came in, that was considered revolutionary, you know. And then ultimately, the Times physical uh, footprint within first its old home and then the new one it built on Eighth Avenue got smaller and smaller because no one was coming in. Nothing doing, you know. COVID is pre-COVID and and was you know exacerbated further. So it became a completely different kind of culture, and that doesn't mean that. It's just silly worse. I mean, there, in some ways, a paper like the Times is in many ways, uh, if you, people who romanticize the old times, I'd say go look back at the Times in the 1970s and 80s. Is it really better or let alone earlier? I'm not sure. You know, really, reporting was much less ambitious. Muckraking wasn't as built into... Uh, the practice of journalism is and is now investigated, so they didn't have the manpower then to do it. So it's changed. Uh, one has to hope it can last and continue to exist, even in the world of TikTok and and AI. And it's fascinating to me that places like the Times are now starting AI units to try to figure out what to do do about it or do with it. It's also an enormous issue in television where I you know. Do a lot of work these days. So, yeah, I think um, a lot of the the, criti- the criticism over the last few years of the Times has been in their choice of headlines and how they treat very controversial stories. It's like the whole period that we went through where the press couldn't call Trump a liar; he was spewing mistruths and all that. And so you'd see a headline that almost normalizes certain behavior, and and that still kind of happens. Not and not just at the Times. It I is, think it's everywhere. But um, it's everywhere. I don't. I don't disagree with that criticism, um, but it's always thus. I mean, it's always, these institutions are always flawed. So when I was writing a column uh, and writing suspiciously in the run up, up to the Iraq war, which I eventually wrote a book, it was the time was one of the prime uh, perpetrators of the WMD myth, you know, a specific reporter Judith Miller was repeatedly played on the front mm-hmm. page by Time Tenders, uh, writing these very d- dubious and, in fact, false stories mm-hmm. about Saddam's supposed nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before I was born, the Times missed the Holocaust as a story. And famously, they, years later, they finally apologized for it. Halfway through the war, the first story they ran about. Uh, uh, the camps, the concentration camps, was buried next to a mattress at the bottom of page, halfway through the section. When I was uh, a drama critic, and people were literally before my eyes on that beat, dying of AIDS, the Times was incredibly slow to uh, cover it or take it seriously as, as a disease. Indeed, when I was a drama critic in the 80s until the late 80s, you weren't even allowed to use the word gay in a review. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to always say homosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, so these flaws will continue. Times missed Watergate, yet it's probably still the best paper in the country for all these flaws. And others have, uh, uh, you know, their own their own issues of things uh, they missed, their mm-hmm. scandals. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and it's still, uh, you know, it's still the newspaper record of the world. And when you talk about the Internet, to me, this, the consequence of the Internet is truth, fact-checking, reality, because the, the race to get the news out, I think, creates a lot of collateral damage with, with truth. But I agree, but now there's a whole other and even more. You know, look, people like you and me and many of your listeners, I'm sure, will go to a trusted source, whether it be the Times or... Washington the Guardian Post. or CNN or whatever it is, Washington Post, mm-hmm. uh, to say, wait, what's really going on here? Let's go to places likely to get it mostly right, despite all the flaws mm-hmm. we've just discussed. But now you have a situation where AI can basically take Times material uh, themselves and uh, and then through the technology, not even intentionally uh, falsify it or change it or change the context of it. So if, you know, to take a broad, slightly hypothetical, not that hypothetical example, you could type into an AI search engine the question, I know, what really happened yesterday in Gaza, let's just say, and at this incident? Mm Mm-hmm. And they may give you an answer that includes several paragraphs of the Times that might be attributed to the Times, but mixed in with stuff that might be wholly false, Mm -hmm. might be deliberately planted misinformation, might be propaganda from one side or the other. And the person who doesn't have the time to seek out the Times or the inclination or doesn't want to pay for the Times or the Post or whatever, you know, whatever source you want, is going to see that on the run, and, and and the Times will become sort of an unintentional beard against its own wishes mm. for false information, fake news, fake photographs, fake videos, everything else. I don't mean to sound alarmist, but I think it is it is kind of alarming. Uh, and no, it's I think terrifying. Knows it, mm-hmm. and and but no one knows what to do about it. Well, there has it has to be regulated, and 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 there has to be a process whereby the owners of information are in that process so that these AI technologies can't just take from wherever and not credit, pay the the content owners. I completely, I completely agree with you, but how that actually happens, who will enforce it? Sure. Do we have uh, uh, a government with the will and frankly, the intelligence, and I mean in the sense of IQ intelligence, not Intel, to actually do it when they don't really understand it themselves mm. uh, is, is, you know, obviously there'll be a couple of senators and a couple of members of the House who, do, who are up on these issues, but then let's face it. Yeah. Chuck Grassley, Chuck Grassley ain't one of them. <laughs> Chuck Grassley ain't one of them. And, and by the way, you know, either is Bob Menendez, I mean, we can name many others. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and, and some people don't want them are afraid of the big tech companies. And then, you know, how is the, the right, the far right, going to weaponize uh, AI and how are hostile governments? It's, and what's fascinating to me is the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the major media only discovered AI was a big story really in the past, what, six months to a year? Mm-hmm. Only it dawned on them. It actually, it, just as it dawned on Hollywood uh, right ahead of uh, the strike, but just in the past year, but this has been going on. It's late in the game. This is AI is not something AI is not something an embryo. It's something that's highly advanced, much more advanced than what you see if you subscribe to Ch- Chat GPT. Mm-hmm. That's like the the training wheels version. The real version is much more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the current chapter of your life: television and film. You've been involved in some great productions, Veep. Uh, White House Plumbers, Succession. What is your process for deciding what to get involved with? It's all about writing. And, you know, the first series I produced was Veep. Mm-hmm. And um, I was looking, pointedly looking for someone who could write a contemporary Washington satire, my hometown. And uh, to do that, you read people, you watch their work, and 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 then try to convince them to do it. 
and then try to convince uh, not employed by HBO or producer with mm-hmm. uh, with a deal there. Mm-hmm. So I have no I have no power to say let's do this. I have to go to the creative executives of, of the network and say here's the case to this. And you know many of the things that you pitch to them are rejected, mm-hmm. far more rejected than accepted. And then for me, the whole process has been of working with writers I've I'd come to know. For instance, uh, Jesse Armstrong, who created Succession, mm-hmm. uh, wrote an episode in the first of each seven seasons, and that's where we met. And we spent a couple of years developing a whole other drama that mm-hmm. didn't get on, but right before Succession. Um, the, this uh, show I j- just did that Kate Winslet's in uh, a limited series called The Regime, the writer on it was a young writer on Succession. I met in the you know, it was writer that we hired on Succession. You know, we had a staff, I don't know, like a dozen writers. And he came up with that idea, the idea which is a, it's, we've said, but it's about a, a dictator in a present day fictional middle European country whose government is seemingly about to topple. And uh, with Winslet as the, as the dictator, and it's a clever, you know, in my view, otherwise I wouldn't, if I didn't feel this way, I wouldn't be doing it. Very clever, uh, incisive uh, snapshot of politics as they stand right now, not just in middle Europe where it's that. Uh, and um, and HBO, you know, wanted to do it. But there are other things I'm just as enthusiastic for that don't happen. But that's basically, mm. you know, there are other kinds of producers who who maybe start with, oh, I've got this big star who wants to do something right. and find something to match the star. I always, because I'm a writer myself, not an intelligent writer, always start with writing. Always, That's uh, something that I care about. It's always, it's always about the writing. Um, yeah. What do you think is the, the secret sauce of Succession? Because it's going to go down in history as one of the greatest series ever. And it's just so damn good. But what makes it so damn good? Well, it's very generous of you to say that. And it's always time will tell. I think um, it's ext- it's extremely, look, at the base, it's extremely well acted and mm-hmm. written. Uh, and again, it begins with the writing. Um, and by the way, a number of, not, not just Jesse, but there are at least, at least three other writers on the show who worked on feet. What One thing about writing is, I've always felt long before I was in television, it's much harder to write comedy than drama. Mm. Much, much harder. Even though comedy is taken less seriously uh, by critics and possibly the world than, than, you know, tragedy or drama, I feel that on succession, it's not some secret sauce as you had. Not all of them, but most of the writers were, were um, comedy writers. Uh, brilliant comedy writers, and to have them writing a drama, you sort of get the best of both worlds. And indeed, the first season of Successful, a lot of people didn't like it. It got a very mediocre review in the Times and a bad review in the Washington Post. And they, and they two things, the two most common criticisms were is it a comedy or drama? I can't tell. And who wants to want to show with such horrible people as the central characters, <laughs> which they are, they're horrible people. Um, but the fact is that writing is true. It captures the humor and the drama. You find yourself sucked in even to characters that are, are awful. They're selfish, they're nasty, uh, uh, they're destroying uh, a lot it's in the public space and America and mm-hmm. the Western world. But they're also vulnerable. Yeah. They're, they're vulnerable characters. And that starts to yes, allow you to find them likable at the same time in some way. I, I agree. I agree. And, and, but, and I think an entryway is humor. I think if mm-hmm. you find yourself, you know, the characters are often quite witty. And I mean, intentionally with him. I mean, we had, you know, there is, there are, there is a character like cousin Greg who, <laughs> who's, who's not witty. He's just, you know, farcical and ridiculous, mm-hmm. kind of like the way Jonah was in, in Z. But you have characters that are savage, but funny. Logan is funny. 
uh, Roman, Roman. Culkin's character. One of the funniest characters is, ever. And I think if you laugh with them, mm-hmm. that sucks you into mm-hmm. identifying with their sometimes their heartbreak or their anguish. Uh, and 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 that's the way I think humanity works. And so that's a very hard thing to do. It takes us really good writing, and there are certainly other people who can do it and 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 do it extremely well. Um, and uh, Jesse had that gift, and the writers we had had that gift, and also all of us, including the people in charge of us that we answered to at HBO really insisted on very high standards. Mm-hmm. I mean, these scripts went through dozens of drafts. They were not written on the fly. And the decision about how to end the series, when and what that ending would be, mm-hmm. that was two years of discussion writing. Where we, writers, when we started discussing at the beginning of the third season, even though the show didn't end until the end of the fourth season. And so, but you see, you see uh, here's an example of a show I had nothing to do with. Um, Mike White's uh, a White Lotus. Mm-hmm. I think he, I've long felt he was a, a fantastic writer. He did a little notice series with Laura Dern about 10 years ago on HBO that I recommend people called Enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a fantastic uh, show that only ran two seasons. In White Lotus, these are it's, they're different from the characters in succession, but they're also rich characters, not as rich, really venal, really crude, really out to get each other, uh, even kill each other, and uh, uh, which is something we didn't have in succession. And yet they're incredibly funny, and you mm-hmm. find yourself caught up with them at some emotional level. The Jennifer Coolidge character of two seasons of White Lotus, is, there's a reason why people love it, but she, mm-hmm. she's not an admirable character, uh, but it's a great performance, a great writing, that it has full human mm-hmm. dimensions. And the thing, I, I was... I was am a huge fan of the show i was so sad when it was over i felt like i lost uh, a friend but the the thing for me was not that it was great writing which it was but the writing had this cadence and rhythm to it it was very like an opera in a way the 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 rapidity with which the lines were punched out it was so quick i've never met anyone in my life who talked like these people because i think normal humans don't talk that way but but you, you watch a show to get lost, right? It's not reality. Yeah. Just the way the lines were delivered, it was literally like watching an opera or some like a like a ballet, something otherworldly than just TV actors reciting TV show lines. Well, I think that's wonderful for you to say, and and you could be a critic because I feel you 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 capture. There's something stylized about the writing. I mean, sure, some people do talk about this real life, but most don't. Uh, and you're exactly right. You enter a, a world that's it's not journalism. It's make-believe. You enter a world that's created by artists, I feel, and, and, you, and then you enjoy that. You, you, it it conveys and it hits you emotionally and intellectually in a way it wouldn't if you had the same characters talking in ordinary speech that wasn't particularly funny or, or any of the kind. And, and, and the density of the writing, it's a little bit uh, Sondheim-esque. One of the things about Sondheim as a lyricist and to some extent as a composer, and then the, the word like takes Sweeney Todd. Um, you know, it's about a mass murder. It's about a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something almost Shakespearean about his his songs or poetic in in that show and here in the case of uh, the roy family they're not serial killers but they're certainly out only through their own uh, uh power and money and don't give a damn about the world that they're poisoning with their media products mm-hmm. and and yet there is a slightly poetic quality about it not in the poetic flowery way just as you said there's addiction there's a cadence mm-hmm. and a wit mm-hmm you know, their lines, to, they all have, basically, all of them. Jerry, uh, uh, Tom, Wontgans, you know, Roman, Kendall, Logan, they all have a kind of wit. You know, look, Iago had a wit and Othello. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. you know, and and and, and uh, it works. 
if it's done well, it works. And um, we're very lucky to have in, in succession of British, writers, British and American mm -hmm. men and women uh, that got together in the room every day and just kept, you know, it's just fascinating thing to watch and be a part of. Mm -hmm. How much, if at all, was the Trump family a factor in shaping any of these characters? Because there are similarities, but there are also huge differences. But there's enough to make you go, oh, I think I, I kind of feel like I know these it was, people. It was, well, it was, ne it was absolutely never on the table or discussed. And, um, and by the way, we had a similar thing happen in Veep, where we created this character, Jonah, who, uh, this, you know, idiot who ends up running for national office and starts as an aide and, you know, is an anti-vaxxer who kills his own stepfather, you know, and has all these, all that, a lot of stuff that's sort of MAGA stuff and Trump mm -hmm. stuff, mm -hmm. all that was to our horror, it's all in the can. And then suddenly Trump started doing it as if he had seen it and was taking it as a playbook. In the case of succession, there's a lot of reading in the room as, as uh, of, of biographies of titans in the media, uh, not just Murdoch, but you know Michael Eisner, um, uh, uh, Robert Maxwell, Sumner Redstone, anything like in, in mm -hmm. others too. You know, mm -hmm. we just were voracious readers of all that, and then just all stirred into a pot. Trump was never never in i mean it was just, it, first of all it was not an impressive media mogul the way these people were mm -hmm. but trump wasn't even on our radar screen by complete happenstance the pilot hbo just jesse wrote a, a pilot script hbo decided to make it uh and we we cast it and we were about to start shooting it and we had a table read at Silver Cup Studio in Queens, Long Island City, before shooting the pilot. That morning, it was the morning of Election Day 2016. And so we all sitting around at the cast and meeting each other for the first time. We do the table read. Then everyone adjourns. Oh, you know, we'll, yeah, everyone say, I'll see you at the Hillary Victory Party, whatever tonight. You know, <laughs> and, and so then a week later, we start shooting it. And we're shooting um, some of the earliest scenes. So I'm staying there with Jesse and with Adam McKay, the director who did the pilot, watching a scene with the siblings. And suddenly Adam McKay says, wait a minute. And if the Trump boy, you know, is it, is, you know, Shiv, the sister, you know. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's there, the two idiot sons. Been, but, but, <laughs> But it was not, it was not premeditated at all. It was like it, it, it was written months before his campaign got serious. No thought he'd be president. It'd been written months earlier because we had to cast the bill to sex, you sure. know? So this is, the election wasn't until like six months after the script was finished and, and no one saw this coming. And so we, we took that in and some people ultimately would write about that. We never leaned into it. We never, mm -hmm. we never looked to the Trump family consideration. Mm -hmm. First of all, they're just too banal. I think mm -hmm. our family is more interesting than Trump's, and uh, and smarter, uh, but, uh, way smarter. And, and God knows, smarter. And they actually ran a successful business, not yeah. one that. And they have support. they have some real human emotions, actually, unlike the Trumps. It's true. I don't think the the worst character, uh, morally or ethically, in succession. Is not remotely at the is, is still, I think, well above Trump. Yeah, it was maybe even midway through the series where I just was like, "Whoa, I, I see some similarities here." So I didn't see that right up front. It took me a while to say, "Oh, the two idiot sons, the daughter, the maniac narcissist father, well, blah blah blah." But can also keep in mind that Jesse, the creator, uh, and I'd say his two most uh, his two deputies, the first among equals among, uh, among the writing staff, were all British. They were not people who spent their life following Trump, hearing about Trump. Right. None of them lived in New York uh, or the United States. Uh, it's just like uh, uh, when we had our uh, you know four seasons later, we had our finale. Uh, 
of the whole show, some people thought in Tom, Tom becoming Victor, that there was a, a player in the early days of baseball, Major League Baseball named, wasn't Wamsgant, it was, it was slightly, it spelled slightly differently, who had done a famous like triple play by himself that that was the inspiration. I'm here to tell you, British writers on succession do not follow American baseball. <laughs> like all they talk about in sentence, British football. So uh, it was not, you know, but people just, you know, sometimes you just hit on something by accident. Mm. So my last question I want to ask you about real quick. You're making a movie about George Santos? I'm making a film for HBO uh, that is being written. I mean, it's not, it, 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 it'll be a while before mm -hmm. anyone sees it. Certainly not, it will be this year. Um, and without saying too much about it, it's a film about someone who could def successfully defraud the wealthiest uh, congressional district in New York State, one of the wealthiest in the country, educated, mm -hmm. uh, affluent constituents who were bamboozled by a complete fraud. <laughs> and it's very much set in that world. The writer who's doing it is a young writer named Mike Mikowski, who wrote a previous film that I had nothing to do with that HBO aired and what it actually won an Emmy a few years ago called Bad Education, mm -hmm. which was about based on an actual fraud involving principal of a high school in, in Long Island. In fact, the high school where Mike went, he's from that congressional district. And that sort of captured a certain kind of Long Island milieu. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, uh, a story that happened there. It could have happened anywhere, but to me, one of the most interesting things about it is that this complete empty guy who lied about everything and no particular talents except for getting publicity and for lying was able to pull it off, you know, sort of mm -hmm. blue-leading, wealthy, educated district. And what does that say as much about voters right now as it does about Santos? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a very fresh take. I don't want to say too much more, but it's not, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a biopic. It, it's very much, if anyone has seen bad education, they'll sort of get the tone of what we hope to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, in this film when we get it going. Well, we'll eagerly look forward to it. We're all about the Santos in the, in the back room here. We've had uh, Mark Chiasano on and Nasa Woomer. And... Oh, well, well, well Mark, uh, we, we optioned his book, mm -hmm. and he's a fantastic journalist who uh, uh, covered Santos and a good, very good writer himself. Mm -hmm. And so he's part of our... Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Band and revisiting this little very strange uh, American fable. Only, unfortunately, wasn't a fable. It turned out to be true. Mm -hmm. well, but a, <clears throat> but, but a, a fabulous nerd's heart. Well, good luck with it. Thank you for coming on. You've been very generous Thank with your time. Uh, I didn't even get to, to talk about politics with you, which I really want to do. So you'll, maybe you'll come back and we can just talk about politics. I'm happy <laughs> to. I, I don't think I have anything to say that you're not saying without <laughs> me, but... Um, Anyway, about it, you know, uh, uh, it makes one's teeth hurt. Yeah. Much more, I much prefer working in make-believe, I'll tell you. But um, really lovely to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take bye care. Bye-bye. Take care, friend. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander. And our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Music